Well, here we go, guys. An episode that is almost predominantly about faith. Not even Bajoran faith, just faith in general. I'm sure that literally no matter what I say, I'll piss off somebody. And I know this because of experience. See, if I say blah, 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 then that side of people get upset. And if I say blah, 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 that people, side of people get upset. And if I don't really take a stance, but just kind of stay in the middle, then either both sides will get upset, or people who, will, who don't like the fact that I don't take a stance will get upset. That's just life. So, gloves are off. I do want to point out one thing, though, before we really get into the meat of it. You notice the uniform thing? I kind of mentioned that last episode. But I just want to point it out this episode. Uh, everyone's in the new uniform, the new uh, movie uniform, which is nice and cool and awesome. I actually really like this uniform. In fact, I would say this is probably my favorite of the, uh, I don't know, the TNG era uniforms. I still prefer the Wrath of Khan, you know, the, the movie-style uniform, but... As far as the jumpsuits, this is great. In fact, I actually sincerely thought about buying one for the show for a while, and then people accused me of weird stuff, and frankly, I don't feel like hemorrhaging my show viewership because some people think I'm too much of a dork to show up in a proper uniform for work, so uh, we didn't do that. Still might do that someday. Not on the show, just for fun, just for myself. One of the things that's interesting in this episode is that this is a heavily religious-themed episode. Now, I'm going to tie together some disparate points that have nothing to do with each other, except I think they do. This is pure theory crafting. As was mentioned before, several studio execs have pushed against the idea of doing religion, Bajoran religion-themed episodes because viewership is bad, and therefore we don't get viewing numbers from it. Now, that may be true. Somewhat recently, and by somewhat recently I mean at this point close to nine months ago, I actually sat down and discussed the difference between quantifiable data and quantified data. In other words, it's one thing to have figures. It's another thing to actually properly interpret those figures to get actual data out of it. This is a whole topic that I don't want to segue into. Like I said, I already discussed this in the past. What I want to bring up here... <clears throat> is my theory that the studio executives had quantifiable data and the creators had quantified data. To explain what I mean by that a little bit, as I've mentioned before, several... This was kind of a unique era in Star Trek, at least at the time, because viewer feedback was available basically immediately. You know, the regular chat room stuff and the, the message boards and all that. There was a lot of people who would specifically go out of the way to reach out to the creators of Star Trek. So they would get actual feedback from actual people basically like that. I bring that up because Rapture, this episode, got a lot of actual good feedback. A lot of people enjoying it. Now... There's not a lot of information on the specific viewing figures, but by accounts, the executives continued to push against the religious theme thing, because that'll come up in the future, which means the viewing figures probably still weren't super great. Which, what I'm trying to say is, I have a feeling that people who liked Deep Space Nine, in other words, the people who were invested enough to, to still be watching this into its fifth season, probably liked the Bajoran religion episodes. At the very least, they didn't hate them. And that viewing figures problem, well, let's just be honest, that was a Star Trek problem in general. As I've pointed out many times before, this was a, a, well, there's no nice way to put this. The viewing figures at this point in history were lower than they'd ever been, and each successive year would be lower than they'd ever been. It was a continuous downslide, pretty much from the start of Deep Space Nine until the end of Enterprise, with, like, I think two bumps in the viewing figures along the way. Once in, um, I don't know the year. It was season, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, season six of Voyager and season four of Enterprise, or the two times when the viewing figures finally started to go up again. 
So, and you, you can find all this information online. They, all the Nielsen rating stuff and the viewing figure stuff is all public record at this point. So my point being, before I really get into this episode, what do you think of it? Like, real question. Actual data. I would like to know. I mean, it's way too late for it to matter to anything. But for the sake of curiosity and for the sake of knowledge, I am curious how many of you liked this episode or disliked this episode. Now, I know that's a broad statement, but I really would love to hear your guys' feedback on this one. Kind of to, to see how this episode applies with regards to quantified and quantifiable, you know, 20 years later. In the very first thought, so I, what I do is I fire up, you know, I've got the DVDs right here, and I plop it into my computer, because I watch everything on the computer. Um, so I go, and then it fires up, and it starts the episode. I usually hit pause while I get everything set up and ready for my Make sure I have my fresh notes, make sure I get a fresh thing of water. I usually have something to help keep me, you know, stay focused on the matter. And I, I just get set up, you know, and not usually since I watch an episode immediately after recording an episode, I, you know, take the coat off and try to stretch and relax and put a heating pad on my back because my back hurts, you know, all that stuff, right? Now, this is all just behind-the-scenes info, but the reason I bring this up is because it was frozen on a shot of the picture, right, really super big. And I noticed that the reflection, which will end up becoming a major plot point in figuring out where this place is, is right there and fairly visible. And I was just like, huh, that's kind of cool that they actually thought about that and actually bothered to put that right there. That's, that's just neat that they, they went that extra detail. It's funny because they, they resolve that plot there within like six minutes because he uses the reflection thing. Speaking of which, I just have to roll my eyes at, at fiction in general's usual approach to enhance. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Enhancement at, the, at that level really just means extrapolation. Let's just be honest about it. Anywho, <clears throat> I do like the idea of it, though. I do like the presentation of this concept. And as an aside, I know this is a very mild special effect, but it's a special effect I enjoy sufficiently that I wanted to comment on it. There's a bit where he has the holodeck recreate the 3D image, and then he goes around the back and he says, well, superimpose and reverse the, the image from this section on it. And so we see basically a blurry JPEG put on the 3D object. Now, anybody who's played video games since the late 90s or early aughts knows what that looks like because there's plenty of low-texture stuff on decent, you know, on, on objects or meshes or whatever. But there was something interesting about that and very, for lack of a better way to put it, believable. The idea that the holodeck doesn't always magically know exactly what it is, and thus it will simply show nothing when it doesn't know what it is. Too often the holodeck is basically treated as magic, as if it just somehow knows everything. Um, this actually came up in TNG uh, in a season four episode, I don't remember the name of right now, the one where Jordy was... But um, it's just nice to see it being a, a tr a treated in this sort of believable manner. Before I move on, though, <clears throat> can I just say that it really bothers me how often in fiction someone says, oh, you were having a dream, and the person says, no, it wasn't a dream. <laughs> God, it, it aggravates me every time that happens. I don't know about you guys. I know what a dream feels like. Like, when I wake up from a dream, it's really obvious that it was a dream. Is that just me? I don't know. Anyways. <clears throat> So, I guess that's the point, though, now that I think about it. Maybe that's the point, because they know what a dream feels like, and this didn't feel like a dream. Poor Cork. I mean, <laughs> as weird as this is going to sound, I have no doubt buying Cork's story. Given the fact that he had no problem play setting off the party later on, I guess he was actually let go by the magistrates, so maybe he was legitimate. So is this just Odo needling Cork? Is that all this is? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Kind of funny thought, though. 
the idea that maintenance needs to be done regularly on these hollow suites in order to keep them from not exploding in people, well, first of all, is a little ridiculous. I mean, <sighs> I'm not even going to go into the many electronic devices we've had for 60 years that would prevent that kind of thing from happening, but ignoring that, I kind of like the idea that that, that explains everything about the holodecks. They, they're just... They're one card being knocked out of the pile from completely erupting, but anyways. So, Cisco is really distant, even when talking about Cassidy, which is interesting. And for a bit, I was just kind of, hmm. But he does get across the idea of someone who is uh, locked into a puzzle, is what I like to think of that. How many of you guys have ever been like that. You've just watched a movie, or a show, or you're playing a game, or you're actually working on a puzzle, uh, either at work, you're trying to figure out why such, such and such is happening, or you're trying to figure out how to solve the the weird issue with the Blade server, which for some reason just is not connecting properly. You know, it, it, there's so many different things that that can apply to, and you just, I've noticed many people will just get locked into the puzzle. They're just like, hmm. And all of their focus is on that. And that's kind of how Cisco is portrayed here. And I want to give praise to Avery Brooks, because he does a good job of portraying someone who is in that state. He's distant, but it's not like he's not paying attention. He's just distant. His focus is elsewhere, but he's still hearing you. He does a good job of that. It would have been too easy for the actor to portray it more as basically just spacing out, which is a, which is a slightly different variance. So then they have the party thing. Yay, the feds are coming. Oh, that's the Klingon. That's the Klingon matter. Sorry, sorry. I actually like the idea that Cork had been prepared for the Klingons to conquer the sector, because that was a real possibility for a bit there. I remind you that Bajor is not actually a member of the Federation at this point in time, and several times previously the, the Starfleet was specifically asked about, either because of internecine issues or because of the Cardassians. So if the Klingons had actually taken Bajor, yeah, they probably would have been pushed out. Anyways... What I do like is Quark's comments about how this is going to lead to a good situation. Now, he specifically mentions that he's going to get more intel because more people are going to be there and foot traffic and blah, blah, blah. If I can digress for just a moment, though, I like the idea that a member state being pulled into the Federation improves its economy because that makes a lot of sense to me. I know what you're saying. Well, but the Federation has no economy. You know, there, there is no money in the future. Well, both of those statements are lies. They are, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but they are flat-out lies. What the Federation does is simply different, uh, and its own pers personal variety of that. This is ignoring the fact that we've actually seen Starfleet officers use money before, as, as far back as Star Trek III, if we really want to get into that. But anyways... <clears throat> but no, my point is, even if we are to presume that Federation people will not go here and spend whatever on Quark's bar. Federation contact, I like the idea, this is theorycraft or headcanon, but I like the idea that Federation membership means more foot traffic. And not just from Federation members, but because, well, now they're, they're connected. They're added to the social network, for lack of a better way to put it. And thus more people are interested in them, leading to more people being interested in them. Kind of a snowball effect, right? I, I rather enjoy that mentality, and I, I just kind of like the idea that that would be a good for business moment, especially for someone who happens to own the only bar, a fairly large venue at that, on the only station that Bajor happens to have. He's kind of got prime real estate is what I'm trying to say. I always kind of wish, side note, I always kind of wish that someone would have come along at some point in time and tried to buy out Cork's bar from under him, because it really is prime real estate in more ways than one, if you think about it. Especially by the end of this season. Anywho, so then Wynn shows up. 
Oh, actually, rewind, sorry. Before that, Kira gives her own thoughts on the matter. Now, I've actually already talked about this, the idea of Bejor's inclusion of the Federation and what that would mean and all that theory. We, we've covered that before because that topic's come up before. I just find it interesting that Kira was so pro-solitude, despite everything, and then has slowly changed her mind to being pro-inclusion. Um, I, I, find, I find that an interesting perspective, especially since it's implied... And the only reason she did that is because he was the emissary. I remember the episode with, uh, I don't remember his name, the other guy who was claiming to be the emissary? We're willing to do anything because he's the emissary, that thing? I really find myself wondering about that, especially since this episode brings in faith. Yeah, I'm getting to the faith topic, I swear. I just want to build my way up to that. Come on, guys, you don't just rip the band-aid off, right? Besides, we're not there yet. Cisco's description of his visions is very interesting. That's all I'm going to say about that for right now. <clears throat> Wynne shows up, and of course she doesn't like the idea of inclusion and admission into the Federation. She eventually changes her mind because of the Cisco. Why do you think Wynne doesn't want Bejor in the Federation? Honest question. Because the motive behind that intrigues me, and I can think of two possibilities personally, and I wanted to ask you guys first before I give my own thoughts. Possibility number one. Well, she's pretty anti Cisco. She has had a bug up her ass about him this entire time. And the end. You like it, so I don't like it. Fairly petty, but fairly win, I would say. Option two, and this is a slightly more interesting one to me, the possibility that her political power would be reduced by Federation membership, since Bezier would have to adhere to certain Federation policies, which would mean that there would be more people who have a slightly more... Basically, the pie of power would be divided into more slices because more people would be involved, hence her section of the, the pie would be reduced. Very simple, again, and very win. <clears throat> what do you guys think? Is there something else that you guys have come up? Because I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm still recovering. I actually spent the last five days hacking up a lung, so I'm, I'm amazed I can talk at all right now, to be completely honest with you. Cassidy shows up. At least Cassidy actually gets his attention. And can I just say, this is, this is going to get a little personal, but I, can I just say I absolutely adore that scene between him and Cassidy. It's probably the best Cassidy Cisco scene I've seen. You know, there's no maybe. It's definitely the best Cassidy Cisco scene I've seen to date. Because because she spent the last six months in isolation and solitude, serving out a prison sentence, worrying and, and being afraid and doubting. You ever get alone? <laughs> You know, you ever, you ever not have roommates or not have friends or not have family or just have a chunk of your time or for whatever reason, by choice or otherwise, you just don't have time with others. And your brain starts to, well, it starts to dissect itself, to put it simply, but even even under less severe circumstances, not true isolation, you know, but in, in circumstances where you don't have people where you have regular contact with, you kind of start to think in certain directions. It starts to feedback loop a little bit, Right. Is one of the reasons I love reading your guys' comments on these things, because they help me keep out of that feedback loop when it comes to Star Trek. I love it when you guys challenge me. I love it when you guys uh, talk about different things or, or disagree with stuff, because it allows me to, to think from othering perspectives rather than just this isolation perspective. So <clears throat> it's one of the reasons I wish I could do this as a stream, if I'm being completely honest with you, because I would love the kind of live feedback. But anyways, she has spent the last six months in that state. And you just tell... and. The actress does a great job of getting it across in her body language and her tone. You could just tell she was worried. She was worried she wouldn't have a place. She was worried she wouldn't be welcomed back. She was worried he wouldn't have... She shows up and he just takes her and just, oh my God, mwah. 
in a, in a very clear, very warm, very affectionate showcasing of I love you, thank God you're back. Or thank prophets you're back, I suppose. And you could just tell the relief there. And the best part is Cisco is so casual about how he accepts her right back into his life. And that's important. Because for all that fear and worry, he could make a big demonstrative gesture. He could be like, yes! But instead, to him, it's normal. Of course she's... It's like asking, okay, <clears throat> do you need to drink water to live? Like, you don't need to make some big de demonstration about the fact that I shall now take this water and consume it that my life might continue. Mm. You don't need to do that. This is normal. And that's how he presents it towards her, which I love because that then gets across the point far better than anything else. You are a part of my life now. An important part. You could just tell how much that meant to her. And as an aside, that dynamic and the chemistry between those two actors and the way they portray it, that right there is why I like the cisco Cassidy relationship. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, there's a scene that I'm going to comment on. I swear I'm bringing it up for a reason. Where Odo, Worf, and Kira are talking about accommodations. And she brings up the thing, oh my god, he actually found it. You know, of course... You know, the prophets must guide us on this one, and the prophets must, we must have faith in the prophets. And then Odo ch ch chimes in, do you think <clears throat> the prophets might be able to find us a room for the captain? Now, obviously that's just a joke scene, but the point is twofold. First of all, Odo obviously has a thing against things proclaiming themselves to be gods. Why? Because he knows the founders. And point two, Odo's a very practical person. Faith is nice, but what's the use of faith? It is, or faith, excuse me, is kind of the, the way his mind works. So to him, faith is fine as long as it serves a purpose. I'll come back to that point. So, <clears throat> Wynne has actually a really cool, a really cool scene with Kira. Now this was, <clears throat> darn it, I'm losing it. This may be my last one today. Wynn and Kira have this scene. Now, Wynn was specifically being written here to try and flesh her out more because they wanted more three-dimensional characters on the show. I'm, I'm down with that. That's awesome. And I do kind of like the fact that they showcase this woman who... Well, it's actually hard to talk about this without considering future stuff, so I'm just going to spoil a very small thing about Wynn's character that we don't find out about until Season 7, okay? This is your warning. We find out in the future that Wynne has never actually been approached by the Prophets, that they've never visioned her, that they've never reached out to her, that she's always been absent the Prophets, and that'll be a character motivator for her in Season 7. Now, I bring that up because that means she stayed loyal to the Prophets and her belief in them, her faith in them, for five years while being tortured and imprisoned, which is also a form of torture. So, tortured and tortured, respectively. Now, that's interesting to me, because I've always had the impression that Kai Wynn, and I say that that way very specifically, didn't have faith. I myself have talked many times about the difference between spirituality and religion. But to make that distinction very clear in brief, spirituality is what you believe. Core, central, centric, okay? Religion is an organization. I have always thought... I've always believed, if you will, that Wynne was on the organization side. That she didn't really believe in this faith. Not in her heart. Not in her core. Not in her soul. Or whatever the hell you want to call it. Not in her pa. Instead, that she and her most centric self didn't actually believe in the faith, but either she had nothing else, or it was the only, let's call it, tool in her arsenal. That it was the only thing that made other people listen to her. 
It was the only thing that made other people care about her anyway. That she wasn't skilled in crafting or fighting or leading. But religion, well, she could do that. She could portray herself as a religious figure. In other words, to put it as bluntly as possible, I think this was always about power for her, political power specifically. And she just used this to gain what political power she could under the horrific circumstances of the occupation. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying she's pure evil, because that's not the point. The point is more that she was, she is still someone, just like Dukat, is not a good person. Even though he does good things, this means Wynne, who was doing good things by helping people and maintaining their faith and, well, quite frankly, giving them something to think about other than how much it hurts and how hungry I am, was a good act done for ungood reasons. You follow? Gray, dimensional, you know, it's the whole thing all over again. But as ever, that is just a hypothesis of mine. So, I feel like I've said this already today. Curious what you guys think. Then they talk about the details of the admission and, you know, the militia being absorbed, which is interesting, by the way. Oh, I meant to look up the episode name. Uh, hang on, I'm going to look it up really quick. There's an episode in, like, season two of TNG. Give me a second. Because I asked a question, I remember this, I asked a question all the way back in season uh, two or one or whatever it was, which was like a year ago at this point. Uh, why there was a... Uh, a bullion. No, it wasn't a bullion. There's a gentleman on the ship. Was it season one? And he uh, he didn't really know Starfleet protocols, despite the fact that he had a Starfleet outfit on. And I kind of theorized as to the nature of why that was and where he was going with that and you know the specifics of how you could have a ship of people who were part of Starfleet and yet at the same time were not actually a part of Starfleet, right? It was just something that, that was interesting to me to, to consider and debate. Well, this little, this one random line thrown out here finally gives me a significant and concrete answer as to why that is. Is this it? This is it. A Matter of Honor, Season 2, Episode 8. This is it, right here. Uh, and he's not a Bolian. That's the wrong species name. I gotta actually look it up. Benzite! That's why I was thinking he was a Bolian. Right? Am I right? <laughs> I'm getting there. He is a Benzite. Right. Okay, so, you remember that episode, right? <clears throat> The idea, bringing this back around to DS9, the idea that Starfleet uh, basically absorbs portions of local military into Starfleet makes all of that make so much more sense now. They're basically grafted onto the existing command structure, probably given ranks and uniforms and given codes and access, but for the most part, they're still kind of left to their own devices, which would explain why there was an all-Benzite ship, which included people who weren't familiar with Federation and Starfleet protocols, because they were used to Benzite protocols. Sorry. <laughs> I just, I saw that, I was like, oh god, that makes so much sense now! Because it does make sense, doesn't it? The Federation would do that. Because what other options are there? Option one, force your military to either disband, or basically go to the academy, in other words, earn the commission they already are serving in. Option two, allowing them to maintain the militia totally segregate from Starfleet command, uh, chain of command, which, let's just say that that has a lot of problems with it and leave it at that. Or three, absorb them into the military and just kind of do what you can with that. Right? It's, it's logical. I like it. <clears throat> Funnily enough, Rene Echeverria worked on this episode, and I have a feeling that line was him, because he's always been big on the setting. It's, it's one of the, he's one of the biggest people who's always been pushing uh, world building and setting building in Star Trek, so I, I can believe that. 
<laughs> um, I'm just looking at my notes here. I'm, I'm trying to... It's interesting how aggressive Bashir is in this episode. Do you notice that? <laughs> so, I guess we should talk about the faith thing. I, I guess I've winded around it as much as I possibly can. <sighs> One of the big questions that's brought up by this episode is the decision between faith and practicality. The idea that faith is not necessarily attached to something practical that I believe in a greater cause that may or may not come forward in the future is something that's been an aspect of human history forever. You could argue the whys and the wherefores, but the concept of human faith, not religion, faith is a very undeniable aspect of human history. Uh, religion is unfortunately also a very undeniable aspect of human history. But I get my point across, or at least I try to, because... What the episode tries to showcase is that this is so important to him that he is willing to risk his life and the lives of those attached to him for it. And what's interesting is the episode doesn't quite portray that as neutrally as it probably should have, even though it's clear the episode is trying to do exactly that. Because there's a scene, which I'll never forget, where Cassidy and Jake are basically begging him to reconsider. And he gives no tangible argument in return, other than just, I want to see this through. And then Wynne shows up to guide him through his visions. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry, but there's no way that that works in the eyes of the audience. Because Wynne has been the bad guy since the very first time she showed up. And I know we're trying to flesh her out more, and succeeding as I mentioned earlier. But she's still the villain. Just like Ducat is still the villain, right? It's the same kind of concept. You, you may have more to you than I am evil, her, her, but screw you, you Davin. Right? So this portrayal kind of automatically makes the audience slanted in a direction. And I've noticed this in everyone I've ever asked about this episode, including me, it's worth noting, and my mom when we were watching this. We're like, well, obviously this is stupid. He's going to die otherwise. And they're doing nothing to convince us that this is worthwhile. The funny thing is, with the advantage of hindsight looking at the next two seasons, this was overall the right call, but only to a, to a certain extent. You see, the funny thing about this episode, and this is the one thing I think the episode does very, very right, it merges faith and practicality. This is why I brought up that Odo thing earlier. Odo's fine with faith as long as it has a practical use. Well, here, the faith enabled Bajor to no longer be, to not join the Federation today, which, mild spoilers, is a good thing. And <clears throat> the fact that the practicality of the matter saved Sisko's life, I don't think this is spoilers at all, is definitely a good thing. So on both sides of the level, we see that it was the murder of the two, the, the, the moderate use of both sides of the equation that allowed this situation to move forward in what is basically the best optimal scenario. Now, the episode isn't quite constructed in a way to really showcase that, but it does still, it, that is still a true statement. That is still how this is it pushed forward. And we kind of see this reflected in the bridge crew, the ops crew. O'Brien and Dax are very clearly on the practical side of things, and Worf and Kira are very clearly on the faith side of things. And if I might take a quick aside, I love T TNG and I love Deep Space Nine. I've, to date, I still haven't really been able to pick which one is my favorite. It, it, it just depends on my mood, you know what I mean? But <clears throat> one thing I will always say that Deep Space Nine has over TNG is main characters who disagree with each other. Remember what I said earlier? 
about how I want people to disagree with me about how I like different perspectives, right? Well, I wasn't just blowing smoke on that. I do, I, that's, that's a core belief of mine, if you want to put it into such things, that differing perspectives is necessary for good to happen. That it's a good thing, to put simply. And TNG didn't really do that a lot, except with its guest stars. The guest stars are what usually adds some flavor or dynamic to the perspectives of the TNG crew. Uh, Barkley comes to mind immediately, but you know what I mean. By contrast, in Deep Space Nine, even the regulars disagree with each other on a regular basis, and that is a regular point of the show. So, point DS9 on that one. I also do kind of like the idea of, you know, the prophets will save him. And yet, as Kira herself, and this is a very smart line, as Kira points out at the end of the episode, maybe we should have faith in the prophets. And Gwyn's like, what do you mean? See, Gwyn and... Well, okay. As I said, I don't think Gwyn actually believes in the prophets. But Gwyn's approach to believing in the prophets, whether she actually does or not, has always been hands-off. I believe that things will work out because I'm a Jedi. Kira's approach has always been more... We have to do things and have faith that this path was laid out for us as we take action, more like a dark Jedi, or at least back before the EU was destroyed. So the idea there being passivity versus action-taking versus aggression, really. Let's call it what it is. And I kind of like that perspective because it's a more interesting perspective shift than what we usually see when it comes to the faith argument. And I really wish they'd done more with that rather than basically a one-off conversation between Kira and Wynne. But I suppose that'll wait for later. Regardless... I do kind of like the medical dilemma. See, the medical dilemma is actually one that humans have wrestled with for a long time, but most especially in the last several decades. Uh, in fact, my mom and my aunt and my other aunt and my grandmother have all gone to multiple classes basically about medical ethics. And I don't mean about, you know, is it correct to slice someone open and then stab them in the heart? That's not what I mean by medical ethics. Uh, unless you're playing... Oh, God, I can't think of the name of it all of a sudden. It's a Wii game. And uh, it's it's like you're, you you you... You have superpowers to freeze time, to operate on the true blood or something like that. It's, it's actually surprisingly fun. Anyways, no. What I'm trying to talk about is here is a person. They have some kind of illness. This illness is preventing them from being fully cognitive. In other words, they are not what you would consider fully sane. Either because they're delirious, you know, from like a fever, or from fatigue, or because they can't be woke, woken up, or because they can't communicate. Something is interfering with your ability to go to the client and say... What do you want us to do? Ergo, we have the idea of the, the person who has the right to do that, which has had several terms over the years. In this case, it's your next available uh, biological relative, Jake. That person is now given the automatic authority under all other circumstances putting aside. And it's worth noting the legal side of this has been debated for many, many years too and is still being debated as of this very year, in fact. It's a very sticky situation, but... Once again, I do kind of like how Jake makes his decision for the most practical reason possible. I want my father. I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment on, but there's no faith. There's no intangible there. He wants to have his dad still in his life. Bam. The end. And it is worth noting that, though he is absolutely horrified to have lost the visions when he gets up, he is very glad to still have his son and, well, Cassidy, when he, when he ends the episode and he puts his hand on theirs. And that's a nice moment, because it kind of helps to show in a visual presentation sort of way that this was the right choice. But before I cut off this video, I have to spoil something. So uh, I'm going to try to go ahead and do this. Spoilers! Shoo. Okay. Spoilers, you've been warned. Oops, sorry. 
giving you a few seconds to pause the video. So Cisco's part profit. I did some looking into this in preparation for talking about this episode because what I wanted to know was when they decided he was part profit. Because as I've mentioned, what feels like dozens of times at this point, this, DS9 has been very backloaded storytelling. They don't plan this stuff out in advance. And it turns out this was another one of those cases. They didn't decide until the in-between Season 6, Season 7 break to, to actually make Cisco part profit. That was when that decision was made. So that's like a year and a half from now, basically, in real-life terms. So th that was not a deliberate intent when they wrote this episode. And yet, as is so often strangely true with DS9, even if you look at it knowing the future, knowing that Cisco is half profit, it makes perfect sense because everything about the way he describes his actions and visions in this episode makes perfect sense if you perceive time not linearly. And thus, he is now able to see things in metaphors and without time being pulled into the equation, just like the prophets do and just like the prophets communicate with others. So you can kind of see how this lines up neatly with that idea, that basically the, the fact that this accident, which obviously wasn't an accident from the cosmic sense of the word, effectively just unlocked the part of his brain that thought in that particular manner. What's also funny is that the same terminology has been used to describe, I forget, it's like the peptides or whatever, uh, the same te terminology has been described to determine how he has visions in past episodes and will be used in future episodes as well, indicating a, a degree of recurrent continuity which is always enjoyable for me, literally. So I just wanted to comment on that, because it's interesting to think about with the advantage of hindsight. It actually makes me wonder more than anything what would have happened if they hadn't operated on him. Now, my personal take on it, I think he would have died, because this was not the moment in which he was supposed to rejoin the prophets, and he was not supposed to sacrifice his body in order to become the more ascended form that he would eventually be. But at the same time, it does make you wonder if he would have just ascended to being a prophet right here and now if that had happened. Since, well, let's be honest, what effectively happens in Season 7, and again, we're well in the spoilers territory, just, this is your final reminder, is that Sisko dies. It's just that he manages to keep going afterward thanks to his prophet nature. Anyways, that's all I got for today. I will see you guys next time for a far less faithy, far less dangerous episode. <laughs>